Welcome to the Sprig Podcast, your source for the most relevant topics in pediatric dentistry. I'm your host, Dr. Jared Johnson. On today's episode, we'll continue the focus on residency with Dr. Victoria Sullivan. This time, we'll cover the do's and don'ts you should keep in mind to make sure you enter and leave residency as prepared as possible. Dr. Sullivan is a pediatric dentist who trained at the University of the Pacific and went on to earn her certificate in pediatric dentistry at USC. She furthered her education with a master's degree at the University of Rutgers. She is an adjunct at the University of Houston and an instructor for Sprigg University. Dr. Sullivan, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Jared. I'm really glad to be back. So one of the biggest challenges has got to be, there's two different types of people that go into these programs. So we have residents that are coming right out of school and we have residents that have been practicing for a long period of time. And there's a lot of do's that you can do from these two different groups. So start out, starting out of school, there's a lot of things you can do to, you know, be open to education. And also coming back from a private practice, there's a lot of things you can do to be open to learning new things. So what are some of the things the differences we should be looking forward to for these two different types of residents? So I think if you're, if you're just coming fresh out of dental school, um, what you have going for you is the information that's state-of-the-art, brand new, is really right at your fingertips, and you are used to the academic rigor of dental school. So stepping into the, the both physical responsibilities and academic responsibilities of a residency is something you're pretty well set to do. However, your skills are still very, very new, young, and fresh. Um, and we're about to take them and make them uh, very specialized and very specific. Um, if you're coming from a point of uh, view of practicing for anywhere from three to 10 years and then returning into pediatrics, I think that um, you have a wealth of hand skills and a wealth of knowledge of very practical experience. Um, but you may also have uh, shifted away from the academic rigor and coming back online to learning that information and, and expanding your point of view um, I, I sometimes hear from returning uh, students that, well, that's not the way you do it in the real world. And the reality is that uh, you may find shortcuts once you're out in practice, but there is the, the right way and the correct way to, to initially learn the procedure. And there's, there's good reasons for why you want to do it that way. So I think both groups are, are very exciting. Um, and they're full of incredible potential, but I do think that they both need to be aware of the fact that um, for the newbies, they don't necessarily have the hand skills and the, the control that they might uh, gain as they go through. For our returning uh, older, wiser students, <clears throat> being open to new ideas and, and being willing to do some of the work and research to, to understand it. I think you hit on the head. I came right out of uh, my program. And... I did a lot of class two amalgams in residency mm -hmm. and I did a lot of class two amalgams when I got into private practice and in residency, I didn't get to see my work back. I didn't get to see one, two years later. And right. I realized a lot of mine were fracturing because I didn't prep enough. And I'm sure that the residents, you know, before me or after me came in and they saw that and you don't get to see that. So it's, it's, you hit it on the head there with, you know, 
you're going to learn a lot with your hand skills and things coming out of school, but private practice, you got to kind of come back to, you know, learning the tried and true pediatric dentistry model. One of the things that is kind of intimidating when you come into residency is just, I remember sitting down with Dr. Sachs, he was over me and I was trying to do a back to back stainless steel crowns. And it's just, it was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I went to him and I said, Hey kid, can you help me here? The kid was, we, the kid was good. And then it just took too long. And, you know, I came in, you know, a little bit probably hot on my head, but, um, what can you say to people? How do you come into it? Like, don't be afraid to ask for help, but come in with, you know, a little bit of pride. How, how do you balance that? So I think um, one of the best pieces of advice I got was from Dr. David Good, uh, who was a mentor of mine at USC. And, and he said, I look over all of you and you're all my colleagues. And the difference between me and you is experience. So he already was coming to us with a, with a huge level of, of interpersonal respect and a desire to really just bring us to the, to the level, to the knowledge that he already had. Um, I think most instructors really do look at you as somebody that has the same passion that they do for children and the same passion for healthcare, and they're looking to make you a, a phenomenal colleague. Um, but they do know quite a bit more than you do, and they do have a lot of experience. So I think that, that the way to approach them is to be open and um, comfortable with the information that you have, and then to be looking for them to augment your information. Um, I can't think of a more difficult situation than dealing with space loss crowns. And let's face it, over the time, somebody along the way is going to tell you, hey, if you've got space loss down below, you might be able to use an upper first molar crown into that lower first molar slot, and that may close your space. Or a trick in prepping, instead of having a straight plane, you might have a slightly back tilted plane that might buy you half a millimeter space going to the lingual that might help you to connect those two crowns and stuff like that, that you're not necessarily going to get out of how many stainless steel crowns are expected to survive uh, for five years or whether placing a stainless steel crown on a four-year-old is going to be more successful than on a seven-year-old. Um, those obviously you can find in your research statistic information, but the tricks of actually practically getting in there and executing are, are going to come from your instructors. Uh, it's incredible that you mentioned that, uh, the stainless steel crown check. We just had a patient come in for a recall today, um, and she had a, a lower right mandibular first molar that I had placed an upper left maxillary mm -hmm. first molar on. And I just thought, man, if this walked into the other office, they'd probably think I put, put the wrong crown on the wrong tooth, but that was the right crown for the right situation and in that space loss. So, Man, amazing that you're touching on these tips and tricks that you learn in, in your program. And I wouldn't have learned that if I wasn't open to being teachable and having maybe exactly. Dr. Sachs sit down with me and teach me, hey, look at this prep. You over prep this tooth. Now you need to put on, this looks more like an upper left first molar than a lower right. Put this tooth on. Right. Right. Can you talk about more in, in depth about being teachable and maybe some of the residents you had or someone that excelled at being teachable? Well, so I really think you can get a sense for each person's personality. Um, and 
trying to tailor what it is that you're communicating to their per personal learning style is, is an art and it, it definitely takes time and practice. But I think as, um, as a resident, how you take the information that your instructor is trying to provide you really makes a difference. So if you feel like they're um, criticizing you as a practitioner, criticizing your, your medical judgment, um, as opposed to raising you up and helping you to be a better practitioner or um, a more complete or thorough practitioner, um, changes how you take the information in. So uh, how you frame it or reframe it when somebody gives you that information. So for example, uh, you could have gotten rather bent out of shape if Dr. Sachs said to you, well, you overprepped. Um, but if, if you were taking it from the, oh, I hadn't thought that I'd changed the shape of the tooth and now there's this new opportunity to place this kind of crown, um, I think that's what you look for when you're communicating between a, uh, an instructor and a resident is, are they able to take constructive criticism and frame it in a way that they're comfortable and frame it in a way that they're willing to come back and ask you for further advice or further support. Um, I also, you really don't want to be a resident who is hiding a mistake. Um, I know it's scary when something goes wrong and we are working on living human beings. We don't like to make mistakes, but residency is where they're going to happen and being comfortable enough with your instructor and safe enough to go and say, I think I've done X or Y wrong. Um, and how do I get myself out of the situation is critical to the learning path. Yeah. You're never going to get away from that in private practice. We had a, a patient at my office and you know, we did a filling on an inter tooth and she ended up in the hospital a few years later and it was scary for me. Yeah. And the doctors couldn't figure it out. And we all knew what it was. It was from her tooth. And she was placed on IV antibiotics. She spent a few days there. And we heard her back. And I consulted some of my endodontic colleagues. Uh, and we ended up finishing the root canal on the tooth. And she's been great. We just saw her at the grocery. I just saw her at the grocery store the other day. But <laughs> you're not going to. You have those moments where sometimes you need to ask for help. And you need to ask for yes. and. It's a collegial thing. It's got to be important. You can never get away from that as a practitioner. To be, a, Don't be afraid to ask someone else for help. And you got to definitely be able to recognize your failures, but you also got to take on some difficult cases in residency because you're never going to be able to take that on in private practice where you, have, you don't have faculty to back you up in private practice, right? So you want to be able to take on some right. of these difficult cases. Right. And I think uh, that's really important, too. If, if you want to try, for example, uh, an Equiforte crown um, and to see what advantages that might have for you, you want to do that in, uh, with the support of somebody who's experienced with that. Uh, same thing with a phrenectomy or with a biopsy. Um, those are opportunities where you have a well-educated, well-experienced person sitting like an angel on your shoulder, basically saying, let me help you to know how to do this. When you get out into private practice and it's, and you're, it's just you, when something goes wrong, if you've never had the opportunity to do it under supervision, it's, it's tough for it to be the first time when you're all alone. I completely agree. I, I still get nervous. I've only done a few infants. We just got a laser at my office and I still get stressed. It, it's natural. I haven't done 
hundreds of these, like I've done zirconia crowns or hall crowns or stainless steel crowns or fillings. It's not, you don't get stressed about a class two anymore. You get stressed about the things you haven't done. So do the things that you strive to do in residency, have someone to fall back on so you can get that experience and have the confidence to go out and do the great pediatric dentistry that you know you can do. Absolutely. One of the hot topics in residency, it's such a challenge, is that darn research project, right? Um, (laughs) It's You don't have enough time to do it because you only get two years. You can't do the high-quality, randomized, controlled clinical trial, but you got to pick a topic. And you're an adjunct. How would you, if you're coming in, recommendations on when do you start? what interest should you pick? Probably not the one that you want, probably something your faculty wants, but what are some tips you have for coming to residency, how to get this requirement down and have a, an optimal outcome? Right, so this is something where you, you cannot sit back and wait. You have to very proactively within, I would say the first eight to 10 weeks that you're in your program, you want to see what the style of research is in, in the residency that you've chosen, what, um, Advisors are available and what you're absolutely right, what interests they have, because ideally you're going to dovetail your interest into something that they're interested in. And, and basically you want to arrow in on, I think a clean, small research project is a lot more effective than a very broad topic. Um, I think too often people want to answer five questions or 10 questions. You really need to arrow down into one specific tight research question, um, preferably that your advisor is interested in because otherwise you're just not going to be able to execute in the time allowed. I also, I encourage people to think long and hard before they uh, opt for a live patient project because the IRB process, the requirements that the university has to protect those patients will really take a lot of time for you to get through. And I think that's probably one of the reasons we're seeing a lot more surveys, but I think, you know, a great research lab-based example would be a a high clinical acknowledgement to uh, a lot of these kids that are coming out and being able to offer that. So, you know, maybe picking something that you can do in a lab versus clinically would be a a better choice for a a lot of these residents. Absolutely. I think that um, I've seen some really interesting work on, um, different chemical carries eradicators um, where you really can take uh, previously harvested teeth that have lesions and apply some of these different materials and see how far they penetrate down, how much of the decay they actually break apart. You can test products, uh, zirconia, um, glass ionomer, uh, silver diamine fluoride. We had a really interesting, very small uh, research project done where um, basically they wanted to see how effective the silver and silver diamine fluoride was if you cured the uh, tooth after it was applied. Um, there's certainly a lot of people out there that, that don't cure the tooth, and there are a lot of people out there that do. And I'm not really sure where that all came about, but we found it very interesting that frequently when you cure it, it actually inactivates the silver. Yeah, that was a really... Uh 
interesting fact that you had. I just learned that recently, but uh, yeah, yeah, the light carrying will actually precipitate into silver oxide, which Mm -hmm. inhibits the process of the silver being able to have that zombie effect or the silver killing one microbe in the bacteria and then going on to the next. So great research out of uh, your programs that you've been teaching it. The last thing. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, no. Uh, I was just going to say, and and they're not necessarily big questions. I mean, that just happened to be a novelty that somebody was asking about. Why do some people cure and some people don't? And we're like, maybe that would make a fabulous research project. And it sounds like, I mean, that was great. I mean, if you're looking at placing a smart technique, maybe you don't want to do the RMGI the same day you place the STF. Uh, One of the other things is reading. So one of my mom, she's a periodontist, one of her um, colleagues that she went to residency with said to me before I started my program was, hey, you're going to have a different aspect on your residency program than when you went to dental school. It's going to be, you're going to the program because this is what you want to do for a living. This is you. Mm -hmm. You're going to invest in it more than you invest in dentistry, in general dentistry. And I thought to, that to be true. And I just found myself just reading, you know, court lit, everything I could find about endo because I love endo. And what are some things, textbooks maybe you could suggest or just how do you approach that from a reading aspect? Because you can do so much clinically and you can do so much didactically and there's got to be a balance because you're only going to so many patients. But if you have a patient cancel that day, there's still an opportunity for you to go in and get some information packed in your brain, right? Absolutely. And I think that um, there are some books that I I sort of feel every pediatric dentist should have, whether it's the standard adult and adolescent and child uh, pediatric dentistry, or it's um, smart restorations and their history or it's um, all the topics on laser dentistry for children. Um, You really should gather up a few books, gather up a few articles, um, and and have those on hand so that if you do have a slow moment, you can pull that out and and get a little bit more into the background for why you're making these clinical choices. I also think it's a great opportunity to learn more about the kids that we're taking care of. Um, You know, JAMA posted an article in September of 2019 that said one in five of our children are going to have a diagnosis, which means special needs is really becoming mainline or mainstream needs. And our ability to understand the chemistry, the physiology behind those issues are going to be critical for how we move forward in treating these patients. Yeah, it's, I've seen a lot of uptick in special health care needs patients in my office, and it's been challenging, but it's fun at the same time. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, but it's still, it's, I'm still learning it. You know, lifelong learner is what I kind of propose myself to be. But, you know, it's, if you didn't have a huge special health care needs uh, program residency, you're going to be out there on your own. And I'm in a rural community. You're going to be working on that every, every single day that you uh, see patients. I, I think the biggest thing for residents to do is ultimately the best way to go about your program is just going to be to have fun and get along with your co-residents. Just take every opportunity, share experiences, and embrace them. I think 
some of the best moments in dentistry that I have were in residency and just going through it with everyone and having those moments where celebrating your successes and, you know, laughing about maybe something that didn't go well, but you were able to correct it. And in those moments where you genuinely became a better professional, um, do you have any recommendations or experience on just having fun with a group of residents? I think that you have to set out to recognize that these are going to be some of the closest people um, that you ever have an opportunity to, to be with. Um, still one of my dearest friends was my side-by-side co-resident. And I think you need to do time to get to know each other, go study together, go out and have a drink together, um, eat at each other's homes, really spend time getting to know each other and getting to know the people that you're working with. Um, and yeah, absolutely share your mistakes because those are the people that you can call when you're in the midst of a, of a crisis situation in your private practice and say, I'm stuck. What do I do? What, where do I turn? Um, and those people really can carry you through for, for the rest of your practicing life. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I still have weekly conversations with one of my uh, PGY2 that was ahead of me. And, you know, we just had a situation last week where we both had an uh, experience, which was not the greatest in our office. And we were able to share that with each other. And, able to reassure each other that everything was going to be okay and talk through things and work through what are the next steps. Yes, this didn't go well, but this is what you need to look forward to. And that's awesome to build that bond in residency that maybe five, six years later, you can call them up on a weeknight and say, hey, this happened today. What do you think? What should I do? And have another set of eyes on it. And just that relationship that you touched on is going to be incredible. So don't sacrifice that for anything. I want to move into more of some of the things maybe we don't want to do, which is probably not what everyone wants to talk about, but it still is uh, something we would would like to address. Um, We talked about this earlier, but definitely if you get in over your head, this is huge for me. Even now it is in private practice, like, I talked about the case earlier with the young lady needing to be admitted to the hospital because she had an infection and needed a root canal. It's like, I called my colleagues and asked for help. And I learned that in residency. I, with Dr. Sachs, we just talked about that earlier. Don't be afraid when you're in trouble or you're not sure to ask for help. You will never, never, ever go wrong by asking for help. Is that right? Absolutely. And I, I think ultimately it's it's huge that as a as a student as a resident you recognize that okay i i am stuck here i don't know how to get myself out of this situation um you mentioned how uh, you were doing crowns and the time just ran out so it had been a good kid but it just kind of went south that's exactly the key moment when you bring in an experienced pediatric dentist who can help you with behavior management who can help you with tricks that you know, get you through to the next step quickly so that you can recapture that moment. Without that being willing to reach out, you really feel, will find yourself in a quagmire and you don't want to be there. No, it's not. It's humiliating for you. You don't look in front of the parent. The kid's not happy. It's just, it's not a fun situation for everyone involved. Um, one of the other things that can be really challenging from 
coming in, you know, maybe from general practice or, you know, from a dental score where you're trying to like compete for the top spot in the class is just being competitive. Like when you're in residency, drop it. You don't need to be out there. You've already earned your DDS, DMD. You're a dentist. Everyone else there is your colleague. And one of the things you don't want to do is you don't want to be competitive with other people. You're just there to get experience, learn everything you can. And then also, you're not competing with your peers. They're your equals. You're trying to better them. And if you have a bad experience, share that with them so they can learn. I can remember having a bad time and I'd, I'd go back and I'd say, hey, this is what happened to me. <laughs> this is, let's talk about it, right? Absolutely. I think you, you are hit, hit it precisely correctly when you said you're not competing with each other anymore. Everybody, everybody here has decided on their specialty and none of us is going to go out and treat every child in the United States. We're all going to get a portion. There are plenty of children to go around. There's plenty of decay to go around. So it is the time to sit back and really utilize each other as sounding boards and utilize each other for all of the immediate knowledge. Because you can't get every experience when you're in residency, but between five of you or between 10 of you, you might. So you absolutely want to do that. Yeah, you might have only have, I mean, look at these syndromes, how rare some of these are. You might only have one resident that gets to treat this syndrome. And if they don't share that with you. You're missing out on that whole breadth of knowledge and experience of that, that you could have. So you want to definitely share each and every experience. If you have a patient that maybe has a rare syndrome, you want to bring, hey, I've got golden heart syndrome here. We got this mm-hmm. patient that we is very rare. They're, you know, hemifacial, hemifacial microsomia. We want to bring everyone in. Let's all evaluate this patient. What can we do? What are the options for this this case? And work on that in a collaborative experience. If you were competitive and you hid that from everyone else, they would miss out on so much education and that's going to hurt the program as a whole, you know, moving forward. So being able to share things and just open up about your failures, special needs, it's just an incredible way to promote education throughout the program. Absolutely. One thing that I took as a big challenge when I was in residency was that maybe on call or limited patient that comes in, we get, you got the um, receptionist saying, Hey, all the residents, Hey, we got a, we got an emergency. It's four o'clock. It's Friday. That's the case. And they wanted to run for the hills. Yeah. That is absolutely the case you want. That's Mm -hmm. the case you want. And I made it my onus in residency to say, Hey, any emergency that walked in, no matter how busy we were, who's going to take it? My hand, I wanted it to go first because that was the experience that I wanted to have. If I have XYZ, that's going to go into your private practice. You're going to have XYZ walk in at the end of the day at 4.30 and you're going to be able to say, I own this. And if you don't take that in residency, you're not going to be able to help that kid. And that being able to have that confidence that gives you so much experience. It's not almost the most pleasant thing you have to deal with in residency. God forbid <laughs> it's, it can be the most challenging, but that's when you're challenged the most, that's when you learn the most. Absolutely. And I also think that, that if you got into pediatric dentistry with the thought that your job was going to be nine to five and that you were going to get to sit upright with both feet flat on the ground and your shoulders back, you're in the wrong specialty. 
because children get accidents 24 hours a day and you're going to find yourself doing filling standing up or bent over sideways or um, possibly I, I've done cleanings in the front uh, reception area because the child was too afraid to come back and sit in the chair. And uh, we've had some interesting ketamine darting issues where special needs child has been 180 pounds and running past the anesthesiologist while she darts, darts the moving target. So um, you do, you need to, you need to be flexible. You need to be open to new experiences and you need to recognize that you're always on kid time. You're, you're not going to be punching the clock. Uh, yeah, that's one of the things I think I went to the AAPD a few years ago and that's what Dr. Ann Bynum said. She said, Hey, some kids need more, some kids need less. That's why you're waiting longer. We run on kid time. We don't run on the schedule time. If I need to spend down another 30 minutes with your kid to get this procedure done, to make them comfortable, I'm going to spend that time. And that's, it's just the way it is. So it's, it's part of the gig. Um, Mm -hmm. the last thing I wanted to touch on the don'ts is I touched on this earlier, but don't judge prior work done by residents. We don't have the time to see everything back. And, you know, I mentioned that I probably have a bunch of failures on class two amalgams walking around there, but I didn't have the time back to see, to improve that. And we often are our own worst critics, but we also got to be, you know, understanding of the other residents and maybe some were experienced, some weren't like me coming out of dental school, but it's not productive to talk about, prior work with the parents and things is it's more productive to talk about how are we going to fix the problem that's presenting with the patient. I agree. And I I think unfortunately we're taught in dental school to be very critical of each other as part of our learning. And we take that out into the real world. And there is still that competitive edge that, that a lot of us are left with from dental school. This is not the way that, that you take care of each other out in private practice. It's not the way that you build, um, a reputation for our profession, and it's not really in the best interest of our patients. We we really have no idea what went on um, in that situation. Even when you're sitting with the child at that moment in time, you have no idea what they were like six months or a year before. For all you knew, they had just had a recent trauma and there were high anxiety. They might have had difficulty opening their mouth. They might have been uh, right in the process of getting sick or or had a strong gag reflex or a past history of reflux. There's so many factors in what can go right and wrong in an individual procedure. And frankly, there are going to be bad days uh, when you practice. And there are going to be times where you look back at an x-ray and go, how did I miss that decay? Or how did I miss that margin was opening? And you would want the same gentle respect uh, turned and afforded to you that you really ought to give back to your colleagues. Yeah, I think David Rothman's quote, uh, great pediatric speech, speaker, is doing pediatric dentistry is like change, trying to change a tire in a car moving 60 miles an hour. And <laughs> uh, that just sums it up for me perfectly. But, you know, we all have good days. We all have bad days. And when it's in your private practice, you can fix it and make it right. Um, but when it's a residency program, you don't have time to you're gone. It's over. Yes. Like it's, you don't want to throw someone else under the bus. It's, this is what I see. Here we are. And honestly, in residency, you're probably treating the highest carries, carries risk kids out of anyone. You're seeing a high load of Medicaid and they're probably not having the best diet either. So it's, there's so many factors like you'd mentioned that go into this, that 
it's it's hard to be judgmental of things that have done uh, prior. So, you know, that's a great way to sum it up. So is there anything else that you would like to add that we haven't covered tonight as far as the do's and don'ts of, uh, of a residency program? This has been a great discussion. Well, I think the, the one thing that I would say um, is that despite all of the hard work that you're going to do, despite all of the, the load that you're going to have, residency goes by in the blink of an eye and there will be other Super Bowl parties. There will be other movie premieres. Don't waste time when you're in, when you're in your residency, take every opportunity to pick up something extra because it will all benefit you in the course of the rest of your life. That's great advice. I think this has been a great discussion. We've loved having you here, Dr. Vicki. So uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sprig Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share on social media. If you have any questions or if you have a topic you would like to hear covered in a future episode, please email podcast at spriguusa.com.